What's up, guys? It's Rafael Garcia. We're back for another Wednesday edition of the MMA Ratings Podcast. Today is October 26, 2016. And, you know, we're back for the first time in 14 days. I've been having a pretty busy couple of weeks, but that's still no excuse for not getting you your show, getting you your MMA content. So I apologize for that. We'll definitely um, do better to make sure that that doesn't happen again. But anyway, we're back. We're here. And we are once again talking to you about the world of mixed martial arts. And Schwann will be joining us. He is running a little bit late. But uh, he will join us because we're going to have some pretty interesting conversation today. We're going to be talking definitely about Uriah Faber and his pending retirement. We're going to be talking about UFC 205, 206, and just some other news stories that have come out over the last few days. We have probably about two weeks to catch up on. And since we do not have any fights again this weekend, it allows us to focus on news as opposed to uh, fight analysis, which I always think is pretty awesome. Both, you know, Sean does a great job with the fight analysis, always breaking down every single fight. And I like, and I personally like talking about the news impact of some of these stories from a sports business perspective, because oftentimes I don't think people look at things in interesting ways, especially when it comes to a sport that's still kind of new in mixed martial arts. So anyway, we're going to go ahead and jump right into it. Um, we're going to start off with the first conversation point, which is Uriah Faber, the California California kid, excuse me, can't really talk right now. But if you missed it on Monday, he announced that his upcoming fight against um, his upcoming fight against Brad Pickett at UFC on Fox. 22 will be his last fight. Now, this is funny that this kind of comes up because our last show back on the 12th, Schwann and I were talking about Brad Pickett and whether or not he should retire after that last performance he put on um, at the last fight that he put on uh, against uh, Ilori Alcantara, one of the two, but he lost that fight. He looked bad. And I was talking more about Pickett retiring, whether or not he should be on his way out of the sport. However, what ended up happening is he's still fighting. He's still kicking, still here. And now he's facing Faber in his last fight on December, I want to say it's like 22nd or something along those lines. But it is UFC on Fox 22. So what happens? First question is whether or not Faber is a Hall of Famer. Now, this is a difficult question because it's not because this is not necessarily a question that is voted upon. You know, as always, the UFC Hall of Fame is kind of willy-nilly run by the seat of their pants. In a sense, it's kind of based on favoritism, not necessarily um, productivity, if that's the case. Because think about it, there are a lot of guys who are missing. Men like Frank Shamrock, you know, Tito Ortiz didn't go in until he was on good terms with the UFC. So obviously, you know, there's there's some contention there. Kind of think of it along the lines of, if you're a pro wrestling fan, the way the WWE kind of withholds people from their Hall of Fame based on a number of different issues, not necessarily performance as a whole. So, yes, Uriah Faber, is he a Hall of Famer? Um, there's a piece on MMA ratings that's probably going to go up tonight or tomorrow where I make an argument that I believe he is a, hall of, a first ballot Hall of Famer. This is a conversation that I've had before. This is a conversation that I've had before that I've written about because personally, I believe without a doubt that he is certainly a first ballot Hall of Famer. And I'm using the term ballot loosely because, again, there really isn't any voting. There's just a willy-nilly decision made on who's going to go in and who's not. But I digress because this is always a good conversation point. 
Faber deserves his spot, his place of recognition amongst the other men who are a part of that group. Reason being, you know, there, there's a lot of different reasons. The first, I always think of the first detraction people are going to throw in his face is that this man has never won a UFC title. He's had four opportunities to win a belt, probably the most of any individual to win a title. I'm thinking maybe, well, Frankie Edgar's had four. Well, no, he has he only he, he's only had three, but he, he, either way. Faber's had four different opportunities to win a belt. You know, he lost to Dominic Cruz at UFC 132, lost to Hennenborough at UFC 149, lost to uh, Hennenborough for the second time. Uh, how many years later? Two years later at UFC 169, then lost to Dominic Cruz again at UFC 199. Not the greatest track record, um, but he has always stayed a viable contender in the division. I mean, this fight that he lost, think about it. He lost to Jimmy Rivera at UFC 203, and that is the first time he's lost a non-title fight in the current weight class where he was competing. If you look back, yes, he lost to Frankie Edgar at UFC um, fight night, Edgar versus um, Faber in May of 2015, but that was in featherweight, featherweight division, just because it was a big name fight. It wasn't necessarily a um, a huge opportunity. However, hold on one second, guys. However, you know, he's been very consistent um, as a competitor across the board. Yes, he did lose that fight against Jimmy Rivera. And it's kind of like, it's people, I don't know, I don't want to say people are overreacting to that fight, but he lost a very tough fight against a tough a guy who I think is going to be a contender at, at bantamweight. But even still, this man is a model of consistency. Throughout the 13 years, he's been a professional. Then let's talk about his impact, not only to the WEC, the World Extreme Cage Fighting, but his impact as a lighter weight in mixed martial arts as a whole. Uh, I think Shawan just joined us. What you doing there, sir? How you doing? I uh, just got in. Um, just just came in on the show. Glad to be back on for the fans. And glad to see that you're doing good, man. Yeah, thanks, man. I definitely appreciate that. Um, so we're going to go ahead and, and continue pushing forward. Right now, we are talking about one, Uriah Faber, um, whether or not he is a first round or whether or not he's a Hall of Famer. Let's just say, is he a Hall of Famer? Is he someone that you think of when you think of that group? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think I have to say that Uriah Faber is a Hall of Famer. I, I don't really see how you can get around it. The question is, how does he go in? Because I would say that his importance outweighs his actual con contributions as an actual fighter. Like his fight record, he has some very long winning streaks. He never, he, he's only lost like two non-title fights in his entire career. He was a former WEC champion and King of the Cage camp champion. And he's had almost the most submissions in UFC history, or he's one of the top submission guys in MMA history. But the biggest, the biggest thing that puts Uriah Faber um, as a Hall of Famer, and I think he touched on it, was just his value as a lower fight, as a lower weight fighter. He was one of the first stars in the lower weight division, and two guys who are now kind of like the uh, pillars of their division, basically made their name and got their shine off of beating or having extended feuds with them. Jose Aldo really became solidified as a force at 45 when he dominated Favor, and Dominic Cruz, his whole profile. And his and his name and his brand and attention to his his um, improvements as a fighter have all been basically Uriah Faber generated either by coming back to be Faber and then beating various fighters from Faber's camp. Like his whole career, the biggest fights that drew the most attention and allowed him to put on his best performances were all against Faber or against someone from Faber's camp. So Faber's played an integral part 
and Dominic Dominic Cruz's um, his revival as a fighter and his his expansion of his brand as a guy who can talk and who can sell fights and who can have a persona that people kind of gravitate towards. Had he never fought Uriah Faber and had they not had that ongoing back and forth um, and had he not been beating Faber's guys, I don't know that Dominic Cruz is the name or the face that he is as it stands right now. I mean, he said it himself. A lot of what he he did was to beat Faber and prove that he was better than him. So a lot of the changes, a lot of the growth, a lot of the work ethic, a lot of the focus, the strategy and pre-fight planning, a lot of that was all because of the loss that Uriah Faber handed him, and that fueled him to great heights. And, and Dominic Cruz, who's not the biggest Uriah Faber fan in the world, will admit this himself. Faber's the one who made him take it seriously, made him make those changes, and made him dedicate himself to not just fighting, competing hard in a fight, but competing hard in preparation and game planning. He'll give Faber that credit. So I think Faber's importance is more impactful than his actual his actual accomplishments as a fighter because he never won the UFC championship and most of his losses, his biggest fights were losses and they were dominating losses to guys who were his contemporaries who were the best at the time. So it's hard to really say that he ever put a stamp on his career as a fighter that says he's a Hall of Famer, he's well above the rest. I uh, actually compared him to, to a degree, maybe a better version of a Ken Shamrock because Ken Shamrock never really won his biggest fight he was never like a true UFC tournament winner. And, um, but he was one of the main reasons the UFC actually sold. He had look, he had the image, he knew how to talk. And uh, his rivalries with people basically created stars in the vision, you know, created stars in the U- UFC. He created, Hoist Gracie's, one of his biggest wins, aesthetically speaking, was when he tapped out Ken Shamrock because Ken was the masterful, muscular, good-looking American guy. And Hoist finished him in like minutes. And part of Tito Ortiz's biggest ascent was his constant back and forth with Ken Shamrock. So a lot of people's stars were created off of Ken Shamrock. A lot of people got named wins over Ken Shamrock. And um, Ken Shamrock helped push the, uh, the sport forward by giving it a name and giving it a, a personality and giving it someone who could speak out on behalf of the other fighters and on the sport itself. I see Uriah Faber as a guy who did the same. He was just a much more competitive version of, of Ken Shamrock than uh than Ken was as it pertains to MMA. But if you think about it, Faber never really progressed past a certain point technically. And once guys kind of caught up to what he was doing, you started seeing him being less and less impressive against a lower level, against the highest level of competitors. And you started seeing like a change in the guard. And essentially that's what happened to Ken. At one point, Ken was considered one of the best submission, best fighters in the world. But as guys started improving their training, their techniques, their uh, game planning, what he did no longer was nearly as effective as it was prior to that point. And, but he still had name value and Faber hasn't been the Uriah Faber. We've come to know and love for the past, probably about two years. He's just been experienced enough and tough enough and wily enough as a fighter to keep on winning or to keep on being competitive. But a lot of, a lot of what people are going to remember Faber for is for uh, having team alpha male for being one of the first, lighter weight stars and being for a guy who, who kind of solidified the legitimacy of Jose Aldo and um, Dominic Cruz. Yeah. So let's, 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 you talked about a couple of different things. So let's go ahead and build on that. First and foremost, um, I personally, I wrote about this and I expect it to go up on the MMA ratings website this week. I personally believe that without Uriah Faber, a lot of things do not happen. We, I don't believe that – I'm not saying he is the main catalyst behind this, but I think his popularity and what he did with being the face of WEC, he was like – they built that organization on his back to begin with. And, they, and MMA in Sacramento, Southern California, that area definitely grew with him there. Without him, there's a good shot that we don't have guys such as a Conor McGregor now, that we don't have guys such as Frankie Yeager, that we don't have Jose Aldo and down the line. The reason being is because kind of that link from when the UFC originally got rid of the lightweight division and brought it back. Um, People are going to argue me on that, and I totally understand, I totally get it, but I think that it is a 
worth a talking point. It's worth the consideration to talk about the impact he had in bringing not only building up some of the stars you mentioned, not only building up you know the Aldos and the Dominic Cruises, not only building those guys up, but building up the lighter weight divisions in such a way that now we have lightweight, featherweight, bantam, and flyweight. And in, in a sense, maybe even directly impacting the women being brought um, to the to the point where they are too. You know, because again, the, the same argument that was consistently made against women in mixed martial arts was also made against smaller men in the fight game as well. And, and, and in a sense, it's still kind of made that way across all of the combat sports. So I wonder if, if, if it's worth consideration to say Faber not only impacted the guys that you talked about, but he, he impacted these divisions in a way that they may not necessarily even be around if this guy wasn't doing what he was doing in the WEC cage. Yeah, I, I would say there's some legitimacy to that because, I mean, prior to prior to really Uriah Faber kind of coming out, I mean, he was he was on shows like the Jim Rome show. He was all over. He was all over the media, and he was a guy. I always talk about how fighters are very serious about their craft, but they often complain about money or opportunities or contracts or branding. And the fact is, they never take steps in and of themselves to expand their brand and expand their division. They just want to fight. They just want to do their business and go home. They don't want to put on a show. They don't want to talk. Faber was always the guy who was willing to push the brand and push the division. He made himself a face by going out there and taking interviews, by showing up at sponsorship events, by staying coming in early to talk to fans, by staying late to talk to fans, by selling tickets. He, is, he essentially was the first guy below a certain weight class who was actually somewhat of a, who was a legitimate draw and who actually ha- had a cross-cultural, had cross-media interest. I mean, at one point, Rosie O'Donnell was a huge fan of, of Uriah Faber, and people say, well, who's Rosie O'Donnell? Well, at one point, she had a talk show that may not have been super successful by normal media standards, but as far as MMA show goes and MMA content, as far as, like, UFC interview shows and whatever else comes along with it, her show's ratings just her show's ratings were just smashing all those. And Uriah Faber helped open up those doors to lower-weight guys. And, and as a result, other other people benefited from that because, you know, it's, the same, it's like the Conor McGregor effect. You're fighting on a Conor McGregor card. There's a lot of people who are going to hear your story, who are going to see you fight as a result of you fighting on his card. Even if you're on a fight pass card or a prelim, your fight is going to get more attention because he's connected with that card. Faber had that, had that impact. It wasn't as great as McGregor's, but it was still noticeable. Faber's still probably one of the top 10 biggest stars in MMA right now as far as fan bases and as far as his reach. And if you think, and you look at another point, a lot of these divisions, a lot of the guys in these divisions who are ten- contenders or fringe contenders are guys who came up under Uriah Faber. They might not be with him anymore, but they're guys who came up under Uriah Faber. TJ Dillashaw came up under Uriah Faber. Joe Benavidez came up under Uriah Faber. Cody Garbrandt came under Uriah Faber. There's, there's a lot of guys who are actually in title contention as a result of his dedication and his, the efforts he put into them. Think about it this way. Who was Dwayne Ludwig before he came to Team Alpha Male? I mean, there's another guy who maybe he was, he's very skilled, he's very experienced, he's a very good coach, but nobody would have known that had, not, had Uriah Faber not taken a chance on this guy and gave him the keys to Alpha Male. Paige Van Zandt, another top contender, came up under Uriah Faber. So it's like his reach isn't just in the box office. It's not just as a fighter himself. It's not just pushing his brand. It's a lot of these divisions are filled out with guys that he helped develop, that he had faith in and put money in before they became legitimate fighters who drew attention from other camps or before they got over that hump and became world champion. He contributed to that. So it's hard It's hard to downplay the amount of value that the UFC and the WEC and, and lighter weight fighters as a whole got from Uri Faber being out there. Because actually, uh, one last thing, I heard an interview by, uh, it was on Heavy Hands by a friend of the, friend of the show, Connor Rebush, Pat Wyman, Dominic Cruz said, Uriah Faber is more of a salesman, more of a businessman, more of a marketer, and he didn't work on his fight skills, and that's why he's fallen behind. I would agree with Dominic Cruz. But think about this. If Uriah Faber wasn't doing those guest spots in Rosie O'Donnell, wasn't doing commercials, wasn't doing interviews with every single website and every big or small MMA writer, and not constantly showing up at fan expos and letting fans come to his, show, his, his gym and showing up at um, volunteer events, that the, the growth of those divisions would have stopped. It was that 
it was that urgency and necessity to get himself out there to push the lower weight is what allowed those weights to grow. And Uriah Faber, 45 was a, wasn't wasn't popular. It wasn't popular until Faber got into it. 35 wasn't really popular until Faber got back into it and drew all sorts of attention because of the impending fight with Cruz or this big fight with Barrow or, you know, they're almost for the past five, six years, anything that has to do with those two divisions, one of the biggest fights could be involved is having Uriah Faber in it, even when he wasn't really in title contention because he's that kind of name and he draws that kind of attention. He's been he's been successful for that period of time. So his his reach isn't just in one or two areas. It's in three or four. And it's not just in one specific fighter. It's in like five or six. Even the guys who don't deal with him anymore have to give credit to what he did to contribute to their career. I mean, even in a sense where you look at the bantamweight division, like his lineage is all up and down bantamweight and in a sense featherweight as well. So I, I can definitely agree with you. And even with Mint, about whether or not his he was a marketer as opposed to a fighter, um, and you can say that uh, that that's the truth, but that's not necessarily always a bad thing. He was a marketer at a time when the sport and those divisions needed a marketer. Um, if you and if you know back to the original question of whether or not if he's a Hall of Famer, I don't believe like. I'm going to compare him to Brock Lesnar. And if Brock is a Hall of Famer with, you know, his, his, his one reign as heavyweight champion and what he's done since, I personally just believe, looking at, the, looking at when he was, especially when he was brought into the Hall of Fame, that he was brought in, as more of a as more of a marketing piece as opposed to a actual competitor and i feel like look using those standards using those reins you can say the same thing about favor easily um i think i've written about this in the past i think it was maybe two years ago last year that you know i always had the argument that he's a he is he he belongs in that Hall of Fame, he deserves the recognition, and he—I personally believe that he still has a lot to give the sport from a business perspective. Because remember, this guy was this guy was doing it long before Reebok came into the game, long before other uh, organizations wanted to promote MMA in, in any way, shape, or form. He's in national ads with guys like Kenny Powers and stuff like that, doing work that got that fighters still can't get in today's day and age. So, yeah, I, my, my vote, hands down, is he belongs in, in, in the Hall of Fame, and it shouldn't even be a conversation at this point. I, I have one more thing I want to say. Like, a lot of people tell me he didn't win the title. He never won the UFC title, the biggest and best title that established a guy. Or he, didn't win, he, he didn't win his biggest fight. But I would say, if you take another sport, you look at the Buffalo Bills, no matter how much they lost four Super Bowls in a row, and everybody's like, well, that's, a lot of people would say that doesn't make them a very good team. But you ask any NFL player with any historical sense of context, they'll tell you making it to four Super Bowls in the row is an incredibly, incredibly hard feat to do, especially with the same team, because everybody knows what's coming. They know the system you run. I mean, think about it. How many times have we seen a team play and win the Super Bowl or a team compete in the Super Bowl and be in the Super Bowl even the next year or the next two years? It took Denver almost three, three years to get back. You know, it's, it's very hard to consistently be in position to be the champion. And if nothing else, Uriah Faber has always been able to stay no, no more than a stone's throw away from the title for almost the entirety of his career, except for maybe the last year and a half. And even now, he had a title fight, the last fight before this one. And if he, even if he stayed in Bantamweight, he'd still be a top seven, top five Bantamweight. If he wins this fight, he'd be a top five Bantamweight. So he'd still be within arm's reach of the title. To be basically be in the title discussion for any organization you've been in for the entirety of your career is a huge, huge accomplishment and consistency. Now, maybe it doesn't give you that sterling pinnacle of greatness, but there's something to be said for a guy who fights a lot, fights all sorts of people. The names on his resume are a who's who of fighters, and to constantly be on winning streaks and constantly be within a title, a fight or two of a title shot. There's something to be said for that kind of consistency. And if you're going to say Jim Kelly is one of the greatest quarterbacks and and Thurman Thomas is one of the best running backs and and uh, the Bills coach is one of the best coaches of all time. 
and they never won a title, they were just consistent and always in that discussion, then how, how would you not be able to apply the very same thing to your right favor? I totally agree with you. 110, um, 110%. Great, uh, great breakdown there. Great analysis as well. So we're going to move on to our next topic and we're, we're going to stick on the idea of Hall of Famers. Um, so let's talk about George St. Pierre and Michael Bisbing. So over the last couple of days, but there's a conversation point that came up where Michael Bisbing claims he verbally agreed to fight ESP at UFC 206. The UFC has not responded to that. You know, they, they, all they have said is that Bisping is, excuse me, GSP is not fighting on UFC 206. That's all, all, all they've said so far, um, which is interesting because that fight, that card isn't really selling right now, but that's another conversation for another day. What we're talking about right now is that GSP has responded and is basically begging for that fight. A, I'm going to ask you two questions. A, is that a fight you would want to see? And B, is it a fight that makes sense for both divisions and both men? And I'll, I'll get your feedback on that, and then I'll, I'll join into the conversation. Um, as far as it making sense, it probably doesn't, because GSP is a career welterweight, and a guy who was known as having the sturdiest chin in history in his prime when he's the peak of his abilities. So in a sense, I mean, he's not a ranked middleweight. He hasn't beaten anybody at middleweight. He hasn't beaten anyone at welterweight in years, but you could at least explain a welterweight title fight because he, he's, he had been undefeated at welterweight for how many years? And he was a lot, he was actually, he's actually the legitimate champion because he never lost a title. So you could justify a welterweight title fight. The fight, a fight at 85 doesn't make sense in the, in the aspect of the sporting, the sporting aspect of it. Cause he's never fought at that weight. He's accomplished nothing at that weight, and he's not ranked. So, I mean, there's, there, it'd be hard. The only reason you move him ahead of Weidman and Rockhold and other guys is because he's who he is, and he draws numbers, and he would guarantee a good pay-per-view buy and a good turnout at the uh, arena where they're fighting at. From that instance, it makes sense. The money instance, it makes sense. From a stylistic perspective, it, it makes sense. It's, it's an interesting fight, given uh, Bisping's aggressive – counterpunching style and his high volume style and high footwork and mobility and angle and variation of striking strikes he uses and combination of strikes he uses. It makes sense from that perspective because it's an interesting matchup wondering if GSP has enough left athletically and enough of a strategic mindset and game plan that he can effectively take away the tools that Bisping prefers to use and create a pace in a range of a fight that allows him to do what he does best, which is control guys with his jab, set up the right hand, chop away with them with leg kicks and body kicks, eventually take them down, control them and work them over on the ground. From that perspective, it's an interesting fight and it makes sense because you want to see how great GSP is. Does his greatness move him up a weight class? Is his, his notoriously great game planning and preparation going to be able to do what he's done to the best guys in the world for the past 10 years, which is essentially take away what they do best, impose his will, and shut them down completely offensively and in regard to all counters. So that makes sense. Um, I get why Bisping does it. You know, it's a money, it's a money, it's a money, it's a money shot he's going for. The difference is GSP's already got money. So he doesn't have to be anxious. He doesn't have to beg for anything. He just wants to compete. But he's not in any position where he's going to give up time or leverage to bow down to the UFC. Bisping's still still active. Bisping isn't you isn't GSP rich. Bisping is trying to get to that point, so he's going to say and do whatever he can to drum up interest in himself, and hopefully drum up interest in the fight to force force the organization's hand to make the fight. But even if they don't make the fight, him bringing up GSP and keeping himself in the media, hopefully for in his case, will help him have more interest in whoever he's going to fight next. As in, oh, I beat this guy and I get GSP next. That's going to be the the next selling point, that's going to be his point to kind of draw in more interest and get more attention on whatever he's doing. Because he's all about playing the game. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. He's masterful at calling people out, playing that character, setting up fights, creating creating interest, creating drama, creating rivalries. 
and that all ha- had played to his benefit as a announcer, as a fighter, and as a personality in MMA. So he's playing the game right. GSP just doesn't have to. He doesn't have to play it. He can step back and be an adult. It's kind of like when people used to diss Jay-Z. Jay-Z is super rich. He doesn't have to. He's he, he's above that sort of thing. He could just sit back there and be an adult. <laughs> Are you really making a GSP, Jay-Z analogy right now? I, I saw the response from GSP. He's just like basically saying, I hope we can get this together. And if we can, we'll do it. If we can't, we won't. He's like all business. He's like saying, I'm too good to get into a mudslinging battle. You're not going to attack him. He, I mean, I'm just paraphrasing for him, but you're not going to attack his ego and make him want to take a fight. You're gonna, I'm not going to challenge his manhood and make him want to take a fight. He's rich. He doesn't respond to those things anymore. Only he responds to is money and opportunities that he deems fit for himself. The rest of these guys, oh, he challenged me. All he's got to do is sign the paper. That's not GSP. GSP's past that point. He's like Jay-Z. I'm above this petty rap beef stuff. Give me a reason. Give me a reason to make you famous, and I will. Otherwise, what's in it for me? I'm helping you out. I'm not helping myself. So GSP's, take, GSP's handling the way it should be, and the UFC's handling it the way they always do. They want to have full control. But as far as actually, like, back to the original question, as far as the sporting, legitimate sporting athletic contest, it makes no sense to have them fight. One guy's never accomplished anything. It's coming off of retirement. It's a smaller fighter. And, um, but from an actual stylistic and from a curiosity point of view and and view and buys point of view, yeah, it makes total sense. And I don't know why they wouldn't do it. See, so let's go ahead. Let's talk about that because from a business standpoint, this fight makes sense to me, especially at UFC 206. This is, this is an event that doesn't well it didn't have any cachet we'll talk about that in a second because there were some big fight announcements added today but this is a fight that didn't have that big draw especially when you pair it with ufc 205 which has mcgregor alvarez and is the first event in new york and then you have ufc 207 on the back end that has ronda rousey coming back if they don't do something for UFC 206, that card is going to flounder. Right now it has Corn Cormier and Johnson as the main event. But other than that, there's nothing else on that card that makes you stop and say, I need to watch this event. So bringing back GSP, in my opinion, was always the right answer. We talked about this last time when we were on. That is the right answer. Bringing him back, putting him as the main event is the way to go, especially with this card in Toronto. You know, we joked about it last time, but we still have not come up with another Canadian star that is even worth mentioning as a main event competitor. GSP answers that question to begin with. Then on top of that, you pair him against Michael Bisbing, who I believe, you know, I was listening to Luke Thomas' show today, and Luke Thomas made a clear argument that Michael Bisping is a fighter of the year this year. And I can totally rock with that. I can totally get down with that. So you pair him against GSP and that, and let them promote, let Bisping do his thing, that fight sells. Yes, does it hold up the middleweight division because there are other guys there who are, are deserving of a, of a title shot? Yes, it certainly does that. But none of these guys, Luke Rockhold, Chris Weidman, Jacare Souza, you know, Yoel Romero, none of those guys are stars like Michael Bisping. The closest guy is maybe a Chris Weidman, but he didn't give, get the opportunity to become a big draw. And he has injury issues, so you don't never know when this guy is going to be able to compete for a extended period of time. So you make this fight to A, get the most out of Michael Bisping while you have him as champion, and to B, Get, get GSP back in the octagon, back in the cage at a point in time where he can physically do it very well and he has the attention of that Canadian fan base, which is what the UFC has been able to leverage in the past. So I, I agree. It, it, makes sense, like I said, it, it makes sense financially for Bisping, for GSP, for the organization. But it, it is, if you're looking at the thing about MMA is there's always been this discussion, is MMA a real sport or is it entertainment? And it's more like WWE is it's sports entertainment. It's legitimate sport, but a lot of it is based off entertainment. In the real, in the real world, let's say we had a, a real sporting world, we had a Super Bowl. What would, you, who, who, who would get better ratings? Carolina Panthers versus Denver Broncos or Dallas Cowboys versus Denver Broncos? Dallas Cowboys. But they, just can't, they, they, they can't insert them 
into the Super Bowl just because they get ratings. They have to they have to beat everybody in front of them for them to get the opportunity to compete for the championship. In sports like even boxing to a degree and MMA, you start picking people pick fights based off of who's going to get me the most money, who's the most viable guy, legitimate guy who also will make me the most money. And so that's not from a sporting aspect, that fight never makes any sense because there's no logical reason for making it. Now, Bisping will say, well, he's been a long time welterweight champion. He's cleared, he's, he's proven he's the best welterweight of all time. So of course he deserves a title, title shot. That's because Bisping would get points off it because he's a champion. But if Bisping was another contender and his title shot was getting held up, he'd say, you're a coward for wanting to fight a smaller man who's been retired. That's exactly what he'd say. That's what all of them are doing. If they had the opportunity, they would all take the money fight. But since they're not in that position, all of them are complaining and questioning uh, Bisping's dedication and his heart and his toughness. That's just the way it goes. But from a money, money perspective, of course it makes sense to have the fight. But athletically and legitimate, as far as legitimacy, nobody can make any argument to me that makes this fight make any sense. I mean, I'm a Conor McGregor fan. I don't understand why he's getting a lightweight title fight when he hasn't won a fight at lightweight at all. I mean, at least be one guy. But the reason he's getting it is because he's Conor McGregor, he sells, and it's going to create a payday for him, for the organization, and for his opponent. Why doesn't, why doesn't Eddie Alvarez challenge Max Holloway? He's one of the best featherweights. He, he's like the uncrowned champion. Why doesn't he challenge Jose Aldo? He would challenge Jose Aldo if Conor McGregor wasn't around because Jose Aldo would be the next biggest money fight for him. So... So from that perspective, it always makes sense. I just noticed the inconsistencies in everybody's logic when it comes down to them getting paid. But athletically and legitimacy-wise, you can't make any argument for GSP coming off of, what, a two-, three-year layoff and then walking right into a middleweight title shot, a fight at a, a division he's never competed in, isn't ranked in, facing a champion in his first fight back. Welterweight, I could at least kind of understand, but middleweight, that that makes no sense. That's That's just as bad as... That's just as bad as um, Punk coming in and de- debuting in the UFC. Like, what have you accomplished where that's, where that's what you get to do? Even Brock, Le- even Brock Lesnar didn't debut in the UFC. So, it, like I said, money-wise, it's, it's great for the sport. It brings more eyes. But as far as legitimacy and proving that we're a sport and we do things the right way, it, it kind of sets them back a little bit, in my opinion. And so uh, if you're just and- thinking about money, it's fine. On top of that, man, I I think we're we're at a point where that thought process doesn't matter in mixed martial arts anymore. Um, and I agree with you. You know, there was a point where we had that standard where it was like, hey, look, we don't do things like that here. We had that standard for a while, but we don't have that standard anymore. So everything, every, especially with men, with the way WME or WMG has come in. Excuse me, WME, excuse me, it's IMG, WME, IMG, has come in and are making changes across the UFC. I know you saw that story about um, about 15% of the workforce got cut, basically lost their jobs earlier this week. So there's going to be some sweeping changes made. This is about business. And from my viewpoint right now, this is certainly about business, and I don't, and I wouldn't be surprised if this fight is made and it headlines UFC and not and if it headlines UFC 206 especially with Dana White saying it's not going to happen I'm like yeah but how many times have you said that and the, the, the exact truth the exact opposite has been the truth so yeah um I think that that that's the story to watch if they're going if they're going for bottom line I don't see it I know it's not as big as Ronda coming back per se maybe it's not as big as a Conor McGregor fight but at worst, it's still like a, a, a million a million buy pay per view with GSP coming back, and it's a sellout in that in that region. It's like the perfect region for him to come back to. So if it's about business, they should have already had this fight signed and give him whatever he wants because they're going to make the money back on it. He's still he's still when you put a GSP story, it gets more clicks than almost any other champion not named Conor McGregor in the UFC because he still has a fan base. He still has people who are interested in seeing him fight. He still have people who believe him to be one of the greatest of all time. I mean, even guys who've lost and aren't nearly the fire they used to be. And why do you have Anderson Silva lead a car? Because he's still, he's still a draw. People still believe him. They want to see Anderson do it one last time. The same amount of people want to see GSP do it. The only difference is GSP never had that crushing knockout loss. He left the game on a high note, 
kept himself in the eye, kept making comments, kept showing up at shows, kept cornering guys, and now he's in a position to come back and his star power has improved, his finances improved, and due to the discussions about fighter pay and fighter treatment, his stance has improved. And now people are looking at him as some kind of, you know, he's a guy who's fighting for rights for fighters and he's taking a stand and he's, he's, he's fighting against the company. The guy who's been the company man for the longest time is now taking a stand and, and righting the wrongs. And not only that, he wants to come back and fight because it's an honor thing and a competition thing. He's, he's at a peak right now where they could really benefit from his money, from his fan base and the money he's going to bring in. So if they're really about making money and expanding their brand and re really having impactful pay-per-view events, I don't see how you even argue with him. You give this man whatever he feels he wants, and then you go ahead with a dog and pony show, let Bisping talk his trash, promote the fight, let GSP say he's going to be his toughest opponent ever, and he respects him, and Bisping's my most dangerous opponent, like he says all the time. And then you let the fight happen. It does a million buys. Everybody gets paid, and you just move on from there. It's like a no-lose Even if he loses, you can put him right back down to the welterweights and see what he can do there. It's like a no-lose no situation for anybody. The only person making it more difficult is the UFC or Dana White or whoever is in charge of negotiation. Yeah, I'm totally with you on, on that. Um, it's, it's an interesting situation. I think I won't be surprised if this fight is made by the end of next week or if it's announced by the end of next week or if something happens around this fight right now. So let's let's talk about let's continue talking about UFC um, 206. Did you see the big fight that was announced um, today? Uh, no, I'm pretty sure I didn't, and it must not have been that big because I didn't hear about it. I mean, it's Max Holloway against Anthony Pettis, so that's a pretty. Oh yeah, yeah, I, I heard about that. I was I was a little not I was not too pleased about that fight being announced. It's man, like uh, on paper. Actually, no, forget it. I want to see this fight, period. I wish this is the type of fight to me, in my opinion, that should be the main event of an upcoming Fox or, like, um, FS1 type card. Because this fight, A, this fight needs to be five rounds, first and foremost. But it's a, it's a three-round featherweight fight. And I'm just, I'm just looking at it like, I can't wait. I want to sit back and I want to watch this because I think that this is going to be something special to see. I think it'll be a good fight. It gives Holloway a chance to fight a named guy, and he really hasn't had a chance to – I mean, he fought McGregor, but he hasn't really had the chance to fight a, a guy with any sort of profile or star turn in the UFC other than McGregor, and that was, what, two, three years ago almost? So he hasn't had another chance to really – Edgar, Aldo, even McGregor have all eluded his grasp. He's been fighting on the guys who are good fighters but second tier, not just in talent and ability – but second tier in their name brand and their ability to appeal to fans and appeal to hardcores. So this is a great opportunity for him. Anthony Pettis is a chance for him to get into contention and possibly have a fight without, if he beats Max Holloway, even though Max Holloway had to win nine fights in a row and still didn't get a title shot. I guarantee you, if he somehow beats Holloway, he will soon be in line to face Jose Aldo. The only part reason I wasn't happy about this fight is actually based off of Anthony Pettis himself. I admire the fact that he's going in there and he's challenging a guy who's a top fighter. He's one of the best fighters in the world. My whole problem with it is this is how Anthony Pettis got into trouble in the first place when he was fighting. When he was fighting at 55, he lost to Rafael Dos Anjos, and then he kept fighting top guys trying to jump the line to get back into contention. And he lost three fights in a row as a result of it because he hadn't made the necessary adjustments in his footwork, in his volume, and his strike selection that allowed him to be successful and to mask the holes he has or to minimize the holes he has as far as takedown defense and wrestling as a whole. And now he comes back, he has a good win, fights Oliveira, and he wins. But instead of taking more time and finding guys who can kind of, well, he acclimates himself to the weight and kind of installs all the necessary adjustments he, he needs to make, such as learning how to pivot, not backing up in a straight line, learning how to punch with somebody when they're throwing volume at you instead of backing up and letting them punch and then waiting for them to stop and then attacking. Instead, he's going up against a guy who every single hole Anthony Pettis has, every weakness, everything that gets exploited against them, this guy is good at. Anthony Pettis is not good with pressure, consistent pressure. Max, Max Holloway throws a lot of consistent pressure. He's not got good with guys that throw a lot of volume. Max Holloway throws a lot of volume. He's not good with guys 
who have landed and can compete with him in the, in the long-distance strikes and kicking game. Max Holloway has landed and can compete with him in the long-distance and kicking game. Every guy who's been able to do this, all the things that Max Holloway does are things that guys who have beaten Anthony Pettis have individually been able to do, and Holloway puts them all together. He's got the kicking game and the creativity and dynamic athleticism. Similar, not as great as Barboza, but similar. He's got the physicality and the work rate of a Rafael Dazanos, and he's got the footwork and the timing and the physical strength somewhere in, in the regards of a Eddie Alvarez. Not th- they're all different. I understand he's not the same as them, but he can he, he can bring to bear the same things they did to beat Anthony Pettis. And in Anthony Pettis' last fight, it was a good win, but the same flaws were coming up. He was getting taken down. When he got pressured, he was getting worked over with volume. He was still throwing single shots. He wasn't putting combinations together. He wasn't pivoting. He wasn't turning his opponent. He wasn't using a consistent jab. His offense wasn't consistent. It's like the same holes. The only difference is he's bigger, so the guy couldn't control him. His, pow- his shots carried a little bit more, more power at a lower weight, and he was able to finish the guy because of the, the strength and the power advantage he had as a result of his size. But he still has the same technical holes, and I don't see how he's going to have enough time to fix them given that this fight is, is happening fairly soon. So from a, I, I admire his heart for going after a top guy and not being afraid to put another loss on his record. But from a position of his management and his coaching, I would have been against this fight. I would have had him go after somebody like Burrell and kind of slowly work himself into contention and work on those things that have, haven't been addressed to a world-class level yet. Yeah, like that, like that fight against Brow is definitely a good um, suggestion there. This fight against uh, Holloway is very dangerous. Um, man, you forget how young Holloway is and how much he's grown since joining the UFC. Not only grown physically, but grown as a fighter. And I, watching him in his last couple of competitions, this dude has looked like he's ready to take on the world. And I feel sorry for him in a sense. But if even if he wins this fight against Anthony Pettis, I think you may have mentioned it. He, I, you can't even guarantee that he'll get a get a get a title shot if he beats Anthony Pettis. But if Pettis was to get that win, you can guarantee UFC will be ready and willing to throw him in there with Aldo or or McGregor, whoever it may Holloway, be. Holloway's almost cleared out the whole division. Almost everybody who's a contender in the division. He's already beaten. Yep, he's the only guy he hasn't beaten is Frankie Edgar, and I think he wins that fight at this point in time. Yeah, he's the thing about it is a lot of guys, like in the case of Anthony, Anthony Pettis had injuries. He had huge bouts of non-activity. Holloway been, has been fighting consistently. He's been fighting a lot, and he's been fighting an ascending level of difficulty in fighter. Some fighters fight a tough guy, then a low guy, then a tough guy, then a mid-tier guy. Every guy he's been fighting has been slowly building him up and challenging him in key areas. Some guys challenge him on his wrestling defense. Some guys challenge him on his ability to respond to high volume and pressure. Some guys challenge him on an ability to deal with athleticism and power. Some guys challenge him on ability to deal with dynamic striking, timing, and athleticism. They've, they, they've all attacked certain areas of his game. So he's been actually developed very well. By having all these fights, he's been forced to improve footwork, improve volume, improve, improve pacing, diversify his striking, settle in and make the transitions between his striking, his wrestling, and his grappling more cohesive and tighter and be more defensively responsible. Every fi- in, in actuality, when you have a young fighter and you're get, getting fights for him, you f- have him face guys who can slowly challenge him in different areas so that he can, he can develop confidence. He knows what it's like to go three rounds and not be able to finish. He knows what it's like to face a guy who's super aggressive. He knows what it's like to face a guy who's super tough. He knows what it's like to face a guy who doesn't want to fight. Guys who kind of test every aspect, the patience, the maturity, the pacing, the physicality, the technique, the strategy, the ability to stick to a plan. He's been facing those kind of guys who have slowly been building him up and rounding his game out. And at this point, I don't, I don't, I favor him almost anybody not named Conor McGregor. But the fact is he doesn't have a fan base. He doesn't have a name and they're doing whatever they can to get other people opportunities to get the title shot that he probably has earned a million times over by now. But at this stage, I think Pettis is still dangerous because he's a finisher, especially on the ground. He's a dynamic transitional finisher when it comes to submissions. But the thing about it is he's been so hit or miss, and I haven't seen the steady line of improvement in Pettis that I've seen in Holloway. You know, sometimes you can win fights 
it, there's guys who go on win streaks and they never improve. They're still the same fighter they were from fight the first fight they won to the sixth fight they won. There's other guys who win and lose, but you said you see a steady progression. Max Holloway, even in losses early in his career, you saw a steady progression. You saw him get beat a certain way, and you saw him address that. You saw him win a fight but get tested in a certain area, and you saw him address that. I have not seen that from Pettis. Pettis is still getting by on athleticism, um, his kicking range, and and that's about it. That's what he's getting by on, and, it, and it, he's been figured out. He's young, too. He's a young, young guy. Pettis is a young guy. He hasn't been around that long. He's not that old. But guys have figured him out, and he has not figured out how to diversify and flesh out his game to the point where he can be consistently effective against the very best guys. And now he's fighting the very best guy outside of Aldo in division, who, as I said, attacks every single hole he has in his game. So I admire that courage, but this is a business, and he loses the fight like this to Holloway, he's all the way back to the end of the line. You know, now he doesn't get a shot at Aldo, and if Holloway beats Aldo... Pettis ain't getting a shot. He, you just lost to this guy. You got to work your way back up, and that's if it's a competitive fight. That's if it's a, if it's a competitive fight. Yeah, you're right. This is definitely something that I'm looking forward to seeing. I hope this is one of those fights where you know I hope no one gets hurt. I hope nothing happens. They need to put these guys in like a bubble-proof room or something like that for the next couple months because this is a fight that a I believe needs to happen for the sake of the, of the division, and b I. Needs to happen for both of these guys' career because this is an opportunity where they can make a start. It really should not be on UFC 206. This is a main event, a Fox Sports quality main event. If they can put Thomas Almeida and Cody Garbrandt as the main event of, of a showcase, there's no reason why this fight does not deserve that same type of respect. Yeah, they're just trying to salvage the car. They're trying to think if we put good enough fights, maybe we can get people to buy in on it. And I just don't think it's going to do it for this card. I think this card is going to, unless something dramatically changes, I don't think this card is going to, there's nothing they can do to save the card because in that region, the guys they're bringing in aren't, they're not even huge fans. They're not, they don't even have huge fan bases in, in their own regions, much less in this one. But I mean, I see what they're trying to do, but I, I agree with you. It should be on a fight. It should be on a fight night card. It'd be a great, it'd be a great ratings getter on a fight night card. It'd be a great fight for a fight night card. I don't know if I want to see it on pay-per-view, especially since Anthony Pettis is on a is only one in th- one in what is he one in three in his last four fights, and he's he's getting he's getting a spot on a pay-per-view already. I mean, I suppose, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, I can definitely, I can definitely um go with that. Uh, so let's let's talk about the next topic. This is one. This one will be more of like a. I, I'm, we might start doing like a more of a comedy type topic every show. Yeah. And this one right here is we're going to talk about Shane Carwin fighting Fedor in Ryzen. Um We talked a few weeks back, maybe like a month or so ago, about um, Fedor coming back. Uh, not Fedor, Fedor. Excuse me, Shane Carwin talking about coming back to the sport. Um, earlier this week, he tweeted out that picture of the um, Ryzen Fight Glove, and he claims that he's been offered a fight against Fedor. Questions I want to ask out here is, A, do you care? B, do you care? C, do you care? To me, the answer is always going to be no. Um, Could Shane Harwin still do work in the UFC? Probably. Both of these guys probably could. You know, it, it would be shoddy at best, but if you have guys like... Um, Gabriel Gonzaga still putting on runs in, in the UFC. You know, you never know. I mean, they just got rid of of, of Bigfoot after all that that he he's been going through. But um, seeing these guys in it, in, they're going to fight overseas, and you know, there's so many different ty- different types of questions going on over there when it comes to fight regulations. I think it's going to be a shit show to begin with, but. I personally am not interested in either one of these guys fighting. To be honest with you, I'm not really interested in much of heavyweight MMA to begin with. But talk to me about this fight. Is this something that that you want to see? And and what do you think is the point of all of this? Um, I don't I don't know if as far as just a straight up interest. You know, I mean, like Fader's Fader's clearly in decline. I mean, clearly in decline. He went he went life and death with a a guy who was barely ranked in the UFC top 20 as a lightweight. You know, he went life or death with Fabio Maldonado, a guy who, steeping Mimiochitz, finished with less than three punches. I mean, knocked cold, could not compete, could not take one shot from him. And Stevie isn't 
a big hitter. He's just not that kind of hitter. And Fader went life or death with this guy and, and barely pulled up, salvaged a draw. So in a lot of instances, the way Fader has been fighting, his dedication to the craft and his full using his full skill set, we haven't seen that Fedor in a very long time. And if we don't see that Fedor, he's not going to beat someone like Carwin. Even Carwin, Carwin should be fresh, and if nothing else, Carwin can always punch. And if Fedor is just going to go in there and sling haymakers with him, I'm giving Carwin a 50% chance of knocking him out. Carwin's not a big. He's not a. He's not a big draw, and he's not a guy who, in my opinion, draws a lot of interest. But it would be good to see Fedor with somebody who's a legitimate heavyweight and a guy who's accomplished something in his career. Because recently he's been fighting these 0-1 guys, these guys who, who just aren't any match for him on any level. And so from that perspective, from the sideshow perspective, and he's a big, powerful heavyweight who knocks guys out, and he's an intimidating force, and he looks the part. I see how it sells over there. But as far as like a genuine interest, like I think this will be dramatically, strategically, technically interesting fight. I'm with you on this. It's just not very appealing to see Shane Carwin fight a guy who I don't know would even be in the top 10 of the UFC anymore as a, as a heavyweight at this stage, given, given what we've seen from him when faced with any sort of real competition. Yeah. Um, man, it's, 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 it's a, it's a scary thought that see these guys continuously doing this to themselves um, in a sport like MMA, as much as I love this sport, you know, I've competed in it. I help individuals get ready for their fights now. You know, I'm even thinking about maybe taking another one in, in, the, in the near future. Watching this and seeing these guys do this themselves. And then you see that story about um, Jordan Parsons, 20, excuse me, 25 years old, and here he is getting diagnosed with CTE. Uh, last week, and man, that makes that makes you have have pause. You really have pause when you see guys getting blasted, and you know, you know what these guys what these guys go through on a regular training basis, day to day. It's it's crazy, and you see men, and and what it makes it even tougher to talk about is when you talk about how much these guys do or do not get paid. And there's that whole part of of the. the conversation that is just being like not necessarily talked about right now but yeah seriously like this is i'm not interested in seeing carwin and fedor fight each other just from a what is the point what good does this do to sport right now and i think the answer is not the thing about it is though guys like guys like him and carwin they've already had names they have some sort of cachet fedor is getting paid no matter what abuse he's putting himself through he's getting paid a large sum of money to put himself through that abuse in the case of Shane Carwin, if he goes in there and competes, they're going to give him a very, very large sum of money to compete and put himself through whatever abuse he's going through. I'm assuming you heard about the op, the offer for Bigfoot Silva to fight in Russia. Mm-hmm. In boxing. That's a, that's a half a million dollars. Dude. Even if he only gets half of that, 250000 that's a lot of money for that's a lot of money for one fight. And for an MMA fighter, that is really a lot of money. You know, these, these guys are getting paid. Now, the guys coming up who are taking their lumps, trying to get into the UFC, thinking it's going to solve their problems financially. Those are the guys I'm worried about because of the constant sparring you have to do, the stress you put on your joints. I've never competed, but I've trained. I've trained with pro fighters. I train with amateur fighters. I know the various injuries you get and the wear and tear it puts on your body and the limitations it puts on you financially and, and, and how, mu- how little money there is to get into this. Anybody getting into MMA needs to really consider, you know, their other options and really make sure that they're le- – financially they're in a good spot because MMA isn't the sport that's going to make you rich unless you're one of the 2% of people in the sport. You have to have your other game plans set up. You have to have your finance set up. You have to have your, you know, when you're going to get in, when you're going to get out and what you're going to do after you get out very, very clearly defined because if you don't, you can get swallowed up in the sport and put yourself in a position where you're trapped and you think this is the only way you can survive and you can't do anything else because you've given so much of yourself to the sport where you don't have any other viable options. You know, you yeah, have I, can there. You have, I remember just to finish one thing. I remember I saw an interview with Matt Mitrione and it was one of the best interviews. He said, you know, people talk about how MMA fighters have college degrees and we're better off than boxers. He's like, if I get a degree, even, you know, even as a teacher and I go fight MMA for five or six years, my degree as a teacher means nothing. If I get a degree in computer science and I don't use it in two years, 
in six months is essentially worthless. He's like, I'm not furthering my skills. I'm actually impacting my mental processes by taking this abuse. I'm taking myself out of the job market. I can't put cage fighter on any resume that'll help me get a job. In fact, it might hurt me because, you know, now I'm famous. Who wants to have me working in their store knowing that people are going to come? Hey, aren't you so-and-so? Aren't you so-and-so? It actually becomes a mark against you. You actually have to be ahead of the game and really explore every sort of option in your life to make sure that you don't end up being a victim of it. You know, because it's any sport is a short career and MMA and combat sports, boxing are especially short. You can't afford to be free freestyling it and just going off the top of your head you have to be realistic about your chances for success and your very real chances for failure and that's where the biggest hole comes in you're you're smart enough to know that you're mature enough to know that you have a sense of awareness a lot of guys aren't they're hung up in the i can be the champ i'm going to be the next mcgregor and that's not always very realistic it's just not you have to think about what could go wrong and what you're going to do if in fact it does go wrong and that's not even considering you're not good enough we're talking about what if you get a concussion you can't compete what if you have an injury and you can't compete? Then what? Yeah, like when you look at guys like has TJ Grant still hasn't fought, has he? You know, this guy was nope. a dude who was on a run, who had people wondering if he's going to be a really a real contender at lightweight. He gets a, a bad bump during training, and he hasn't fought in what four years now? Three? No, maybe three years. Look at look at Chris Holdsworth. He was with he was at Team Alpha Male. He won the Ultimate Fighter. Uh, when has he fought last? Because he had a concussion. He's not not feeling himself. Like that's yeah. that's that's man. That that is the Bellator. He wasn't fighting. How is he making money? Like when you have these contract disputes and these injuries, they don't they don't pay you to be injured. They don't they don't send you out on sponsorship stuff when you're not fighting. Totally true, man. A hundred a hundred and ten percent. Right there. Um, it's definitely a interesting story, and it's something that is worth watching uh, to see what kind of comes from that. So, yeah, you know, we kind of flew by the seat of our pants today. No, um, no agenda, no real story to, to track. So let's talk about uh, what we have coming up, man. What are you working on this week? Uh, I'm still, I'm as usual. I'm, I'm watching watching sparring video and. I like to review a lot of fights. Uh, one thing I, I try to do, I try to take the show very seriously, especially when it comes to addressing topics that aren't often addressed as far as like finances and planning outside of before and after a career in MMA, but especially in regards to breakdowns and assessments, fight assessments. Um, there's a lot of people who do very good jobs of doing that on podcasts and TV shows. And the only way I, I'm going to have fans come to respect what we do and come back to hear what we do is if I'm just as good, if not better, which requires me to do a lot of fight watching, a lot of film watching, a lot of talking to coaches, going to gyms and asking questions, talking to coaches on Twitter, calling people I know. It, it takes a lot of work to provide a high quality product as far as like the content for the people who are interested in this type of show. And so a lot of my time is spent making sure that Whenever I'm making these assessments, I'm making these picks, a lot of which are right, and I'm making these claims, a lot of which are right, that I have kind of like a historical and technical base to stand on instead of just being some loud mouth, because then I'm no better than anybody else saying, hey, my guy's the best. I, I put a lot of work in so that, you know, I, I can uh, appreciate so that I can be, I can show my appreciation for you letting me be a part of the show, and I can show the fans that they made the right choice in listening. So a lot of my time is spent looking at shows, looking at fights, breaking them down, reviewing film, reviewing technique, and really trying to get a better handle on who's fighting, what they do, how they've regressed, how they've improved. And that, that's what a lot of my time has spent. I've been trying to work on some pieces, but I'm trying to take my time, and I want to make sure that anything I put out there uh, does MMA right, ratings uh, um, justice as far as the quality and the content that y'all are used to providing. I don't want to give something less than that. So that's what a lot of my time is spent doing. Oh yeah, one one thing. Somebody asked me a question on Twitter. They said, why am I always acting like I'm an expert on traditional martial arts? Unlike most people who train, like I, I spent a lot of time with traditional martial arts groups and sparring them. Shotokan guys, Kyokushin, Kung Fu guys. My brother won an AAU national tournament for Kung Fu. My dad was the Taekwondo black belt. A lot of the guys I work with have, have extended, extensive backgrounds in that. So more so than most other analysts and most other fighters or coaches, I have a lot of history and knowledge 
it's regards to the philosophy and techniques that those guys use a little bit more so than most people. So I can speak on that with some authority and I have people I can go to if I need to have further explanations about what a guy's doing, what a guy's not doing. I just wanted to make sure I said that because a lot of guys have been asking me questions in regards to that. I understand. I understand the, um, the frustration that comes along with that as well. Um, I myself, you know, I'm always working on new content. Um, I just had a new piece up today actually about Uriah Faber and whether or not he's the first ballot hall of famer. So be sure to go check that out and let us know what you think. Um, and if you don't like the bit, feel free. I really don't care, but, um, yeah, sure. So that's, I have another piece coming up. This I forgot what the topic point was, but I definitely do have some work coming up this week that, uh, I'm always interested in writing. And as always, you know, you can find us, you can find me covering, um, all sports right now. I'm also working on something for the Panthers as we speak. Um, probably going to cover one of these basketball games later on tonight. I have uh, Polaris 4 is this weekend. I'm not sure if you're up on the competitive grappling world, but Polaris 4 is set for this weekend. We have TRE against um, Shaolin. You have Gary Toon and Gilbert Burns in a grappling fight, which has been talked about for the last few months. I'm glad that they were able to make it happen. You have Tom Breeze, um, UFC, I believe he's a welterweight, fighting um, at that event too as well. So it should be a pretty good showcase from top to bottom. So be sure to go to Polaris 4. Um, I think it's Polaris Pro is a website. You can get the live stream for $20. But there's another fight to win card, grappling card this week. Man, there's, then you have EBI, I think, the week after next. It's a lot of stuff going on, man, a lot of stuff going on. I'm still working for Fight Metric, covering glory and UFC events. Like I said, there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, but as always, you can follow, find my work at MMARatings.net. Catch me there. Be sure to go to the page. Use the stars to rank the fights, rank the events. Tell us what you think. Follow us on Instagram, MMARatingsNet. And on Twitter, under the same handle, you can catch me at R. Garcia Sports and just consume, man. There's a lot of different stuff out there covering sports beyond just MMA. Become a sports fan. Watch the Cleveland Cavaliers, uh, Cleveland Indians and Chicago Cubs World Series because we are experiencing history in the making there as well. NBA season started last night. Get, get excited. Hockey just started. So, yeah. Fall is always a great time in sports, and we have a lot of stuff to talk about. One other thing, our programming note, I wanted to say, Schwan, get ready, because at some point in time, by the end of the year, I'm thinking of doing it after UFC 207, which is the December 30th, we have to do a an award show, basically where we're talking about who's fighter of the year, fighter of the year, event of the year, whatever, whatever. So I want to get Michael... Um, on the show as well and Adam Martin see if he'll join on and we can just have a conversation probably be a long one but you know it'll be a good one talking about our picks who are um, the award recipients for the year of 2016 oh sounds like a great idea look forward to that conversation so yeah as always you can catch us next week we will be back with another show next week to talk about the world of mixed martial arts enjoy another MMA free weekend um major event free weekend and go outside go have some fun go watch some football go do all, all that other stuff but for schwan and myself this is the end of the october 26th mma ratings podcast and we will catch you next week all right thank you guys for listening and Raphael, thank you for letting me be a part of your show no problem man always great thank you